Yo, what's up? This is Jacoby from Papa Roach. This is Ryan Leaf. This is Rich Roll, and you're listening to Sober Guy Radio. up thank you for tuning in today thanks to humans for bringing us in and thank you to you for supporting the show today's guest is freddie negretti and uh man i'm super super stoked today uh to to chat with freddie and uh, introduce him to you guys and let you hear a bit about his story um freddie is a legendary tattoo artist he's best known for his pioneering black and gray style tattooing um he really honed in on this uh, while serving time in a series of correctional facilities during a youth mired in abuse, gang life, and drug addiction. Uh, his uh, prison-style designs eventually found their way out onto the streets of East L.A., and in 1980, he created a piece that earned him Tattoo Artist of the Year Award. Uh, Freddie's been featured in all kinds of shows, uh, documentaries, uh, including Tattoo Nation, the History Channel's Mark series. Uh, he's been on Spike TV's Ink Master uh, as a guest judge. Um, numerous online and uh, print video publications. Uh, he's also worked as a tattoo consultant on over 30 Hollywood films, including Batman, Blade, Con Air, Austin Powers. Got a plethora of work. Um, he currently works at the Shamrock Social Club on the Sunset Strip. I'm kind of bummed I didn't stop by in there now when I was uh, down there a couple months back and uh, pop in and say what's up. Uh, Freddie, uh, really honored to have you on the show today, man. I'm super stoked to have you share your story and uh, and hopefully someone out there listening today, something resonates with them that can uh, help them get to get through a time uh, that that uh, that might be um, a, a tough day or maybe it's a good day. Who knows, man? What's up, man? Thank you for joining the show today, Freddie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me on, man. This is uh, great. <laughs> I know I got I got a little bit of energy today. Man. I think I drank a little bit too much coffee, but uh, I'm sure you've had those days. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so. I guess one of the uh, so let's kind of start here, man. Steve Steve Jones, and let me just uh, let me give some some props to Steve because he originally reached out. Um, I know he kind of co-wrote um, the book with you. Uh, he's a commissioned screenwriter and playwright. Um, how did you and Steve uh, Steve hook up? Well, uh, you know, a, a few uh, a few years back, uh, you know, one of the things that I was involved with is uh, called CGA, Criminal and Gangsters Anonymous. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, it it's uh, it's something that started in uh, prisons, and uh, it was focused on uh, more of you know the addiction of uh, criminal behavior and gang activity. And um, anyway, so uh, I was speaking at a CGA meeting, and uh, one of my friends that I was in rehab with, uh, Steve was doing some research for a project he was working on about her grandmother because uh, Steve is, uh, he's from London, but he lives in uh, in Austria. Hmm. And so he was over here doing that. And, you know, she knew that he was in recovery as well and invited him to the meeting. And uh, him and I, <clears throat> and, and so he heard me speak. And then uh, we all went out for some coffee after and, and uh, we were chatting and I mentioned to him that I was uh, seriously thinking about writing a book. You know, I huh. I felt like I had some things that I, uh, to to 
share, you know, some stories to tell. I definitely got stories. <laughs> and, um, and you know, he, he told me, well, he, he, he uh, never did any work like that, but maybe he might be able to, you know, uh, steer me in the right direction, you know, uh, on, on how I might be able to accomplish that. And anyways, uh, so that weekend he was driving up to San Francisco and uh, he, Steve says that it just hit him like a ton of bricks on his way up there. The next day he called me, he goes, you know what? I'm going to write your book. <laughs> I'm going to write it. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, we went on to work about six years together on this project. Wow, six years? Yeah, it took a while. That's tight. You know? uh, we, we, uh, and he's a great writer, you know. Uh, you know, I got the stories to tell, and, and, but I, I'm, not, I'm not that good of a writer. So he really made it happen for me. He's amazing. And, and, um, and you know, we went through every up and down, you know, every, every stumbling block that you can face. Yeah. And as far as getting a, a, an agent getting a publisher, you know, these things were all a struggle, but, you know, in the end, God came through for us and, and, uh, it became a reality. And, uh, the name of the book is, I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's uh smile now, cry later, uh, guns, gangs, and tattoos, my life in black and gray. Yeah, guys. And it, it's a, it's a super cool book. Um, it's got a lot of great artwork in it. Um, it's kind of got, at least to me, it's kind of got like that vintage feel to it. Uh, so really cool. So check it out and we'll make sure that we put all the links to the book and all of uh, Freddie's work that he's also done uh, in the show notes. So you can always go there and, uh, and check that out. Uh, one of the things that you said, man, is, um, you know, you got the stories and, um, you know, Steve kind of helped um, shape those, I guess, into the book. I kind of feel like that too, like as an artist, um, it's hard for us to sometimes express how we how we want to tell a story or or how we want to um kind of create create that idea um and and actually tell it and so it is cool to have good support around us to kind of help come in and um and work out those kinks is that something that was like a was a huge backbone of, of the book for you too yeah yeah definitely and and for steve as well because he had never done a <clears throat> this is the first time he had written anything like this and uh and and so he was very meticulous about it, you know, and, and he put his whole heart and all his skill and talent into it. So, and it came out amazing. Everybody loves yeah. it. And he's going to move on. I think he's uh, in the middle of uh, writing his own biography right now. He's got a great story as well. And he's in recovery, you know, ex heroin addict. And, uh, <clears throat> well, nice. So, that and, that's kind of cool, I guess. Uh, with that said, I, I don't know too much about um, about you know Steve's story himself, but man, we'll just kind of open that invitation up. Maybe we can have Steve on the show uh, next. That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah, he's great. And then you know he uh, also you know in our working together, you know, it's just like everything. We were just constantly on the same page. You know what I mean? Like mm. um, I accepted every suggestion he made. And vice versa. So <clears throat> it was a great working experience with uh, somebody who really didn't have much knowledge of of uh, life out here in East L.A. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> but he learned. He even came. He made trips out here. It's funny, you know, I, so and I took him to, uh, you know, some of the old neighborhood spots, you know, and 
and uh, got got him a ride along with the sheriffs in, into the hood. <laughs> you know, got him a tour into the county jail. You got to see wow. this cell where I was at, and you know, it was just it was a great experience. So how how long? Uh, and I think I think we'll back up a little bit. But since you mentioned mentioned that, how long were you incarcerated for? I know there's a couple stints, right? Well, so like, um, you know, total. Yeah, you know, uh, well, you know, the the main thing when when I was young, you know, when I was a juvenile, uh, I was just in constant trouble. Yeah. And so, but I do remember this that uh, from the age of twelve until I got out of uh, youth authority when I was about uh, twenty two, the longest period of time that I was out would be two months. I was never out longer than two months. So I pretty much spent my young life incarcerated, you know? Wow. And then, and then, uh, but once I became a tattoo artist and those things, a lot of things changed for me and I didn't end up going back to prison till I was like 50 years old. Wow. When, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of crazy. Huh? <laughs> um. it, it was so funny because, you know, like, uh, it, it was inside that, you know, um, that I developed my tattoo ability and, and, you know, and I made great strides, you know, yeah. uh, and, and, uh, in the, in the industry. And then all of a sudden at 50 years old, like I'm tattooing for soup. Oh man, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, <so>. What, uh, <laughs> when, when were like, when did your drug use or when did drugs, um, become introduced to you? Like how old were you and how did that kind of, how did that play a role in you, um, you know, going down that path of gangs and, uh, get, you know, getting in trouble? Well, actually, so first I, I was, uh, heavily involved with, with, with the gang and the gang activity and stuff like that. And, uh, we, we kind of, uh, you know, frowned at, at heroin use when I was yeah. young, you know, like, uh, I was like, uh, oh, I would never stick a needle in my arm. Um, and then we'd see the older homeboys, you know, when they would go on heroin, uh -huh. they'd become disconnected with uh, our gang activity, you know, like all of a sudden they, you know, uh, because back then, you know, they could pull you over. And if you had needle marks and uh, and your eyes were, you know, dilated, you could go to uh, jail for under the influence and they do an automatic 90 days. They don't do that anymore. But back huh. then, that that's what they do. So so now all of a sudden, you know, uh, the older guys when they'd be on heroin, they were they were always in the cut and just somewhere nodding out. Yeah, never wanted to get involved with with any of uh, the illegal activities that we were doing, and uh, and the worst thing was uh, they'd be fraternizing with the enemy too. You know, like the other <laughs> heroin addicts. Yeah, all of a sudden nothing was nothing was important, just heroin. You know, so we could see those. I, you know, I saw all those things and I didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, but then when I was about 17 years old, under a little peer pressure with some of my older homeboys, and, uh, you know, and I tried, I, I tried a shot of heroin, and, and I got sick. All I did was throw up all night, and it just strengthened my resolve, you know. So, you know, I drank and partied and, uh, you know, smoked, things like that. But it wasn't until uh, after I became a tattoo artist and got married and got settled down that all of a sudden I started using heroin, you know, and, and, you know, uh, you know, I continue to use it, uh, on and off, on and off, you know, 
Like, w- um, w- would you would you say that? I mean, was there a specific reason, or a lot of us just like to get high too? I mean, I'm sure that's a component of it, the actual physical feeling of it. Um, but would you say that? After, I mean, you kind of got this career established, you're kind of getting after it, you're married, uh, you have a life, but you're still going back to, um, you know, to using, was it, was there a specific reason or was it more just the fact of the addiction itself just kind of starts to take over? Yeah, you know, I never even thought of it, about the addiction part of it. Hmm. For me, it was, uh, it kind of like, um, once I, you know, did it, once I got high, because the situation I was in, you know, uh. It was before, you know, me and my wife, uh, her, her mother had this big six-bedroom house. And uh, so I lived there with her until we saved money to buy our own house. And then my brother-in-law and her her sister lived there also. And he was a homeboy. And he, he was also a heroin addict. So he kind of introduced me to it. Uh. But, but for me, it felt like uh, something like it was enhancing my good life. You know, that's the way I felt. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like, like everything was going good, you know, like I had always been a loser, you know, a gangster and a thug and just always locked up. Now, all of a sudden I had a good job and I was, I was uh, creating, you know, and using my, 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 uh, art ability and I had a car and, you know, just yeah. why things were looking really good. And it just, when I got high on heroin, it just seemed to make it feel even better. You know, that's the way it started. And so, you know, I, I would, uh, and even after that, you know, when uh, when I got strung out and, you know, what, what would happen, I'd get strung out, I'd get on the methadone program and I'd do a methadone thing and I'd stop and then I would ch- be a chipper, you know, I would just, you know, at family barbecues and picnics and, you know, uh, different events seemed to make it more funner for me, you know, and and then uh but then i'd start doing it once a week yeah you know on the sunday then saturday and sunday and then wednesday and then the next thing you know i'd be doing it every day it's like that uh, that that classic like progression of it you think i got this i got this under control it's all good like i'm you know i can handle it i'm a man you know and then all of a sudden before you know it, boom you're just locked into it on the daily and that grind is probably gets uh gets pretty intense after after a while um one of the yeah, things it's, it's unavoidable one and, but go ahead you know ahead. It's, you know the, the the addiction it's unavoidable you know there's no control in it and you can try but you never you just can't and and um you know for me being a tattoo artist because we get paid cash every day oh yeah it was uh, much easier for me to you know continue a habit you know i didn't have to go out and steal or whatever I ha- you have to do to try to get money to to buy heroin, you know, like uh, each day I made cash. So I'd have a portion. Okay, that goes for my drug addiction. Yeah. Um, I know. I know for me and I, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident there's a lot of other people out there, too. Um, there's definitely an interest in and you've mentioned it a couple of times, the gang, the gang life, like being a gangster, um, especially back in. Um, in the eighties in Los Angeles, um, you know, we, we hear a lot about it through, you know, through music, through, um, through media. Um, there was the crack epidemic that invaded Los Angeles, uh, in the seventies and late seventies and into the eighties, I think even into the early nineties. Um, 
Can you kind of can you kind of talk a little bit about like what gang life was like back then and the reality of it and that um, you know kind of how how it affected you and what I mean what was a day like like on on one of those days when it was just it was just you know kind of crazy. Yeah, well, the gang uh, mainly you know uh, most of my gang activity was during the seventies, and then in the eighties was uh, my my drug addiction days. But uh, for me, you know, uh, uh, like a day in the life of a gang member, you know, we had all the gang wars were in, in full effect. So the main thing is, you know, so uh, we'd wake up in the morning, we'd get together in the neighborhood, we'd, we'd drink, get high, and um, then we'd look for something to do. A burglary was a, was a big activity for us. <clears throat> we'd go into the the, you know, better neighborhoods, break into homes, and then come back to the neighborhood, see, uh, see what gang activity, you know, uh, we could get into, you know, like, uh, you know, at Lomas guys are shooting at their houses. You know, it was a, it was a hard life. It was risky, yeah. you know, and uh, it was dangerous. And always getting shot at, you know, like, and I had so many homeboys that got killed. Like, I remember during that span, I had nine of my best friends got got murdered in gang activity. Damn. And those are and those are your like close friends, you know. So, it, it was a you know the gang life back then, with all the gang wars going on, was very dangerous time, very violent, and uh, and very risky. And like I said, I spent most of it, you know getting arrested and doing time. Yeah. Um, a lot of us in recovery, you know, we've, we, we've had to deal or maybe, maybe some of us who are in early recovery are still working it out on building up the courage to deal with some of the, uh, you know, our past hurts, resentments, all, all that kind of, um, you know, those kind of old, old things that can kind of bury themselves in us. And, um, for you, I mean, you said you had nine homeboys that were, that were murdered, um, I'm sure there's a plethora of other things, you know, that are, uh, that are, that kind of, that you can kind of bury down if you're not, you know, communicating and talking about those things. Like, do you think that as you kind of got older, um, between having, having friends that, you know, lost their lives and then all of the other things, that lifestyle that you were living, do you think that was a, um, or, or I guess how big of an effect do you think that had on your drug use? You know, I think it had a big, uh, uh, you know, uh, a big effect, you know, like, uh, because, uh, you know, during those gang days, you know, the the whole attitude of, uh, you know, la vida loca, you know, my life, my crazy life. And, and uh, you just didn't care. I didn't yeah. care about anything. You know, I didn't care about other people's lives. I didn't care about other people's property. I didn't care about going to jail, you know. I just didn't care. And uh, then, you know, when when I tried to change my life, uh, you know, I really didn't know how, you know. Yeah, I had a job and I was making money and I was trying to, you know, uh, you know, be a good, good husband. I failed at that miserably. But, you know, I still had that attitude with me of I just don't care, you know. So going into a life of drugs and drug addiction you know, uh, very well could have been a result of that attitude of, I don't care, 
Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't want to cuss on your pro- show, but you know, uh, I don't give a bleep. You know, yeah, yeah, about nothing, which is yeah. the gangster attitude. I don't give a bleep about nothing. Yeah. You know, so, so I uh, it was easy for me to, to, uh, to, you know, be a liar, you know, be a cheater, um, you know, and live a crooked life, and try to portray a person that was living a good life you know yeah well i i'll just i'll just say the curse word for you because it's it, they referred it i think it was a, a buddy of mine or someone in rehab when i was in called it a case of the fuckets and he basically said like i it's i don't care i mean just like you're saying like i have that mentality where i just don't care you know and um Man, that is, you kind of said earlier, that's a, that's a tough way to live after a minute because in your experience, you started going in and out of, uh, you know, in and out of jail and prison. Um, I mean, that's a tough life. It's not, it's not something that I, I feel like, uh, sometimes it gets, um, it kind of gets glamorized, right? Like, did you ever, did you ever like feel like that? Like, oh man, this is the kind of the cool thing to do and not, I'm not disrespecting you saying that you were just doing it to be cool or anything. I know that's, that was just your life. That's where you grew up. That's what you knew. But do you feel like, especially today, like maybe from a cultural standpoint and the way that, um, the way that media portrays things and music sometimes can portray things that that's like this glamorous lifestyle and, and it's not. Oh, I, I definitely think when, when uh, things blew up in the 80s, you know, with, with all the different gangs and uh, the, the black gangs, the Crips and the Bloods and all the Mexican gangs with the wars they had going on and stuff. I, I think the media romanticized it. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Oh, totally. And, and made it popular. And then along with, the, you know, with music and things like that, like the, the whole gangster rap music, you know. Yeah. It, yeah. It kind of made it appealing to young people and so many young people got into it, you know, uh, it was an epidemic in itself, you know? So yeah, it definitely got romanticized. I like the way it's romanticized now, for instance, uh, like the Cholo gangsters they have in Japan, you know, they, and they're actually all over the place. It's, it's amazing. Huh. And a lot of it's based off the tattoo world, but you know, like, uh, Mr. Cartoon and those guys, they go to Japan and, and they have lowrider shows over there. They, they kind of <laughs> take, they kind of take the, you know, the, uh, some of the positive aspects of, of what we're doing, you know, our style, our style of dress, our style of walk yeah, and talk, yeah. our cars, our lowrider cars and our graffiti art, things like that. And, and, uh, and they live those things out. But they're not killing each other. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. That's definitely like, a good let's, thing. Just leave that part out. They're, yeah, they kind of take the positive aspects, you know, of of that lifestyle, the cholo gangster lifestyle, and they're living it out. It's amazing, you know. It's just amazing. In Italy and Japan and you know all over, they have these. Uh, He's like cholos, you know. <laughs> I didn't know that, man. I'm gonna have to look that up now because that sounds pretty interesting. <laughs> it's worldwide. Um, yes, it is worldwide, and a lot of it is based off of the fact that our style of tattooing has become <clears throat> one of the one of the more popular style styles, the uh, black and gray realism. You know, it was uh, yeah. that all came from uh, <clears throat> you know the 
the Chicano subculture, cholo gangster uh, lifestyle. So yeah, let's uh let let's kind of transition into that then, man. And I, I'm not gonna press you for for stories and all that stuff, man. If y'all listening want some more stories, there's plenty of them in the book. So uh you know you can you can go and uh and and pick up the book at any time if you want to hear more of that. I, I I really wanna hear um more about you know the 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 tattoo style that um, that you kind of played a huge role in um, in creating and. Um, uh, and then I know guys like Jack Rudy, like Ed Hardy, um, you worked with those guys. They were some of your uh, friends. Um, you guys kind of almost mentored or, um, or uh, you know, worked together. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love it if you could get into that a bit, kind of how that evolved and then where it's at today. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, of course, uh, so being uh, raised in, uh, you, know, uh, in uh, you know, the Chicano neighborhood, those things – that were really important to us, uh, images, you know, um, and being a kid, you know, I, my father was an artist and my, my uncles were, they were all in prison and they were prison artists. And, uh, so I was, you know, born with art ability, you know, so I kind of became the neighborhood hand poker, you know, tattooing Pachuco crosses and gang slogans on the homies, the other homies. And, um, but you know, there's those certain images that were very important to us, like uh, the Aztec imagery. Hmm. You know, we consider ourselves warriors, you know, and uh, we represented with, with uh, the Aztec culture because that was part of us. Yeah. Um, the revolutionary images like Pancho Villa and Zapata, you know, like, and, and we love women, you know, so the Chara girl, yeah. you know, the, the the uh, sexy girl with a gun belt and a big sombrero. Uh, and then, you know, we're Catholic. So, so uh, those religious images that our parents and grandparents, you know, uh, love so much, those images became very important to us. Yeah. Jesus and Mary and is uh, there a noise in the background? Is that okay? I, 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 it's one hell of a leaf blower. I don't know what it is, but it's all good, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cool. It's not, it's not like overpowering or anything. Okay. Yeah, you're fine. So, so uh, you know, so those images were very important to us. So, you know, and of course being cholo gangsters and troublemakers and thugs, uh, you know, going to jail and prison was a big part of uh, our lives. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, in prison with the prison ingenuity, you know, uh, the the Chicanos uh, created an elaborate form of uh, of tattooing, you know, with these uh, homemade tattoo machines. You know, in prison, you find, you know, they make anything out of everything, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and so these uh, tattoo machines that they break a little motor off a tape tape player and... Uh, and use a paper clip and a big pen and a sharpened guitar string and make this uh, great working tattoo machine so great that that the machine that's most popular now in the tattoo world is the rotary machine <laughs> and basically that design came from prison and uh, and all these young tattoo artists use rotary machines and they were it's amazing that they were invented in prison so anyways you know um that was my background, and uh, the lat when I was in Youth Authority, 
I ended up in this program. It was a, a lockup program called Tamarack. It was uh, for hardcore YAs, you know, guys that that uh, basically there was no more hope for this guy. Yeah. This guy was the worst of the worst and was going to end up in prison. In fact, be, if, once you got in trouble and they decided to send you to Tamarack program, they would first send you to Tracy prison for 90 days. And then from there, they'd send you to this this like old building up in in Preston uh, Preston School of Industry, and it was like the oldest building being used in YA. It was built in the late 1800s. It was a big brick granite building. It looked like a dungeon. Uh, but anyways, the staff there they had a policy for us, you know, of leniency. It's like, look, if you guys don't kill each other. <laughs> We'll let you tattoo on yourselves. We'll we'll bring you pornography, and we won't search your rooms. Just do not kill each other. That's basically their policy. <laughs> Man, that's a crazy policy right there. But it worked, right? I mean, or did it work? I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds did. like it, it did. Worked. Yeah, yeah, see? it did work. And 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 then you know we got the plans on how to make one of these machines from from uh, some of the guys that we were communicating with in Susanville Prison, and uh, we so. With them letting us tattoo, and you know that's that's a situation that's unique in all of the whole prison system. It's funny because when I do interviews and I tell people that story, they're always, you know, like shocked. They're like, "Well, usually prison tattoo artists will say what a what a task it is to try to do the tattoo and hide from the prison guards and everything." Yeah. You know, <laughs> so here they were letting us do it. So for the next three years, I just tattooed every day and got really good. And when I got out, I set up shop immediately in my apartment. And I had seen how tattooing was like really super popular with all the neighborhood guys. Uh-huh. And uh, and so I started doing tattoos, big old tattoos for like $15. I didn't even know. You know? <laughs> Damn, 15 <laughs> bucks. <laughs> that was a lot of money back then. Though. Yeah, that's crazy though. <laughs> but, you know, so... So this is. Uh, did you ever tattoo any yeah. of the guards? Yes, as a matter of fact, I did. Really? That's yes. that's awesome. Yeah, you know that's how how good I really got at it, and wow. and uh, some of these guards would uh, let me tattoo them, and it was good because then we got more privileges and stuff. Yeah. So everybody was cool with that. It's just like, yeah, tattoo them because they give us more stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of that give and take, right? Yeah. So you know. Uh, so at the same time that I was tattooing out of my apartment, uh, tattooing mostly all homies and stuff like that, uh, a tattoo shop opened up in East L.A. called Good Time Charlie's. And um, what they were doing was uh, they saw a market in East L.A. for tattoos, but a different kind of tattoo, a tattoo with no color, you know. And uh, one of the guys that worked there was Jack Rudy. Uh, his nickname was Wero. And uh, Jack had background, you know, in the neighborhood, you know, so he knew the Chicano lifestyle. He had a lowrider car and uh, and he was a great artist. And uh, he picked up on that single needle, fine line, prison style tattoo look. Hmm. And uh, they were doing it professionally out of a tattoo shop. So people would come to me all the time and say, hey, look at this tattoo I got at this tattoo shop. <laughs> and I was blown away. I was like, a tattoo shop? Because we hated tattoo shops. Really? Because we thought... Yeah, we felt like, uh, you know, prof- you know, uh, professional tattoos were cartoony yeah. and uh, no detail. You know, what we were trying to do was make things look real, you know, like 
with detail and yeah. gray shading and you know and and uh realism that's what yeah. we were trying yeah. to do in prison and all that was developed you know from from our culture and our prison style and all of a sudden they're doing it out of a tattoo shop so i would do my tattoos and i would tell people go show this guy widow you know my work and so then he uh you know, he sent sent a message to me to go see him, so I went over there to Good Time Charlie's, and and what it was re- like really cool. None of the other guys talked to me, you know, like <laughs> they were kind of like bi- bikers, biker guys, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, like there was no way that they would, you know, the the tattoo industry was kind of run by them back then, you know, like, and there was no way they were gonna give like a, a cholo gangster a job, you know. Yeah. But you know, I was hoping I might get a job there, but. Anyways, Jack and I hit it off really good, and um, you know, uh, we shared ideas. I brought people that I tattooed. I had a folder. You know, when I went in there, I saw my artwork up on the walls. You know, and I was like, "Dude, I drew that." And he's like, "Ah, that's what everybody says that their uncle or somebody in prison did it." I, like, oh, I had the originals right there. You know, I no showed way. them. Yeah. So, anyways, not, so I went back to doing my thing in my out of my apartment. Not long after that, uh, Good Time Charlie had quit tattooing. He became a Christian, and he quit tattooing. And Ed Hardy, you know, uh, he had made contact with these guys earlier. You know, Good Time Charlie and Jack Rudy at a tattoo show. And when he saw the black and gray stuff, he was blown away, and he fell in love with it. Ed Hardy's thing was he was trying to promote tattooing as an art form. And when he saw what... what uh, what they were doing with the black and gray stuff and the realism, he saw that as a legitimate form of art, you know? Yeah. So anyways, he didn't want to see the, that shop fall into the wrong hands. So he bought the tattoo shop from Good Time Charlie's. And uh, and Jack told Ed Hardy about me. And Ed Hardy said, you know what? We got to get this guy in here. He knows that style. He can relate to these people. And uh, so they hired me. Huh. And then Jack Broody and I and Ed Hardy... Bob Roberts and Mark Mahoney, we uh, we you know pioneered a brand new style and introduced it. Ed Hardy introduced it to the tattoo world, you know, through uh, the the one and only tattoo convention they had once a year, and uh, with publishing and so a new style was born, black and gray realism. And uh, now it's just. Yes, totally. It was totally different now, though, right? I mean, compared to, um, I mean, obviously things change, things evolve. You got different ideas and, you know, different people uh, coming into the industry. But um, I kind of feel like, too, that it's it's almost been um, kind of watered down by all the like shows and, um, you know, and not, not that it's not cool to like bring some attention to it but it just like seems like it's oversaturated and it's so like sometimes i'll I'll, i don't mean to be a dick about this but like sometimes i'll see a certain person with a tattoo it's like oh that's a cool socially acceptable tattoo it's just totally different than what it used to be back in the day like how do you kind of you know see that being in the game for so long well you know that you know that's true i i laugh because when uh you know i work uh at Shamrock and West Hollywood, and and when somebody comes in, as uh, you know, like uh, some 
business guy or a lawyer or something, you know, and it's like, you know, I would like this black and gray tattoo, you know, like, <laughs> I, I'm just amazed, you know, of, of, of where it's gone, you know, like, but, <clears throat> and, you know, I, I think what it was, you know, like back then for us, like, uh, <clears throat> you know, we were showing, uh, we were pushing the envelope yeah. as far as, far as what could be done on skin and you know because it was always thought oh the only way you can do a tattoo it has to be bold lines very simple you know and you had to be able to see the whole tattoo from far or whatever you know like uh and and so as time went on and we were showing that you could do more yeah and you yeah. could do more and uh and people uh have been doing more and more and more and it's just mind-blowing really uh, amazing also the quality of of artists you know like um you know with computers you know like like a whole industry graphic design and illustration was destroyed you know yeah yeah and and um you know so all these great talented artists that may have been you know back then you know doing something else you know are finding a, a pure art form in tattooing you know it can never be done by yeah a computer you know and so you're you have a lot more talent into it and yeah i know it it, it gets uh it's it's gotten saturated and of course you know um you know when something gets super popular it seems like it dies out you know but i don't maybe those tv shows have died out but tattooing i think is as popular as ever yeah because yeah. there's still the there's still a measure of underworld darkness to it, you know? Yeah. There's the pain factor, you know? It, you just can't, not just anybody walking and get a tattoo. <laughs> it's yeah. funny to see people getting their first tattoo. <laughs> they And they didn't realize that it hurts. It hurts you know? a little bit. Well, man, it's <laughs> yeah. funny. I, I saw I saw an interview you did, um, and... Uh, you had mentioned something at the end. I actually watched it with my wife, and a really, really, really awesome work, man. By the way, it's just super cool to kind of to kind of watch watch you work. But one of the things you said at the end, um, you were saying that kids love tattoos, and like I have a three year old son. His name's Cash, and he he loves my tattoos. And this dude will come out like this dude is drawn all over his face, his arms. I'm like, man, I'm, I I hope like I'm not. <laughs> He's like, Dad, I love I love your tattoos. You know, he he, he likes them. He want, I, We walk by the shop. We live by um, a couple tattoo shops in downtown here and he walked by and say i see say what's that dad i said that's a tattoo shop he'll say oh i want to go get one and the, 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 he's three you know but the, your, your point was that as long as kids are liking a man tattoos are going to be uh you know like, like you said even if it gets saturated diluted a little bit they're still popular they're still cool there's always that element of of pain of um of kind of darkness to it and that kind of rebel almost that little rebel cause to it you know Right. That I think that's always going to be there, you know, and and you're right. You know, that's I think what it was, was that that's when I realized that there was a future in tattooing because, huh. you know, uh, I remember I would go to Disneyland that wear a <laughs> tank top and I ha my arms would be all tattooed and there would be nobody else there with a tattoo. Yeah. You know, like and people would back off and look at me and like, oh, wow. You know, like it was a sight to see a guy, you know, with sleeves, you know. And you're at Disneyland at the same time. I mean, that's kind of cool. And, uh, you know, people were standoffish. But, but the kids, 
the kids would run up and say, oh, mommy, look at the tattoo, man. And it's just like <laughs> the kids loved it. Yeah, and, cool. and they'd be, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, you know, I'm sorry. He just says what he, I'm like, no, nah, it's okay. It's okay. And I'd show him my tattoos and stuff. Yeah. So <clears throat> I knew that there was a future in it because the kids loved it, you know. And, um, and you know, the way it is now, uh, um, you know, tattooing's always been popular with the people that like them, you know. Yeah. You know, they love them. And it just so happens that more people and more groups of people, different, you know, uh, um, you know, like, uh, what would you say? Like, you know, like this professional people or, yeah. you know, these people, you know, rock star people and, you know, like different groups of people, you know, lo love them. And uh, so tattooing is... Uh, well has become extremely popular. You know what's kind of cool about that, man? And I, I'm, um, you know, I'm just kind of thinking this as you bring that up because um, it kind of kind of correlates with something I was thinking about before, like your friendship with uh, with Jack Rudy, for instance, right? Um, here you are, you know, Chicano. He's he's a he's a white boy. You know, he, I know he's from down there, so he he gets the um, you know he he's he's got that um, you know that uh, environment kind of in him already because he's from there but at the same time I, what i'm getting at is tattoo tattoos really bring us together like from a cultural and from like you know a um a racial standpoint and especially with all this bs like racial division that's going on right now in our country i really feel um that you know that's kind of a good example of that like it it, it I, and i think the media plays that up a bit i don't want to go down that path too much um but uh I, I just feel like tattoos are such a cool way to bring us together because we're all just people. We're all human. Like who, like, uh, you know, who, who, who cares about what color our skin is or where we're from? Like we, we can share that common thing and some cool artwork and, um, and some cool tattoos. You know, that, that's an excellent point because, you know, it's like once you start getting tattooed, you become part of a tattooed family, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. And you know, you know where you'll never see, any kind of racism or any kind of, you know, you see an all-inclusive place is a tattoo convention. You know, <laughs> like, these tattoo shows are really popular and they're all over the world. But you'll go and you'll see every kind of person there and and everybody relates to each other. Yeah. And, you know, you don't see no color. You see color. Yeah, the color in somebody's <laughs> tattoo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, uh, and yeah, and, uh, you know, the tattoo family it's it's huge and it's multiracial and it's uh it it would be a good way to bring it, it is a good way yeah to, totally uh, to bring peace to this world you know it, because it's amazing and it's it's worldwide you know and uh europe australia you know it's just you know i have friends all over the world you know they're tattooers and tattoo people yeah. And people from all over the world come and get tattooed by me, you know, and it's with this social media and stuff. And, you know, uh, this guy came in the shop. He goes, I just had to come in here and I'm on vacation from Germany. Uh, I just wanted to say I follow you on Instagram. <laughs> he had no <laughs> tattoos. Awesome. No way. Oh, he didn't have any tattoos at all. He didn't have, he didn't have any tattoos. He's just oh, that's cool. A, a guy from Germany here on vacation that follows me on Instagram. <laughs> So yeah, that's a good point you made. 
Well, I, uh, you know, I, I want to be conscious of your time, man. I just, uh, you know, I just, uh, I got a couple more questions if that's cool for you. And then we'll wrap this thing up. Um, there's a couple quotes that I pulled uh, from Charlie Cartwright, uh, Good Time Charlie, uh, and, and Jack Rudy, and I kind of wanted to share those both with you from each of them and then kind of get your take on them. And the one from Charlie uh, that I saw that, I, that really stood out to me, he said, uh, none of us know if we're going to live tomorrow, so I can't even uh, think past today. And so I know for me, that's huge in recovery on living, you know, in the moment and really trying to stay conscious. Um really trying to stay conscious of, of where I'm at today and right now instead of future tripping and, and getting in my own head. Um, so I just kind of wanted to, uh, to see what, what your take on, on that was. That, that's an amazing quote. Yeah. Charlie said that. Yeah. Charlie what? said that, man. It was in, um, it, I think it was a, it was a YouTube, it was a YouTube video I pulled up. Um, and it was, it, it was him coming out of retirement uh, to do one last tattoo session. I can put the link in the show notes too, for those out there listening in case you want to check it out. It's kind of cool. Yeah. And you know, Charlie's a really wise man also, you know, and he's always cool and collective, you know, he's a, a great guy. Tell me that quote again. Yeah. He said, uh, none of us know if we're going to live. And I, let me, let me put a little context behind this too, is that um, what he was saying was, somebody had came into the tattoo shop and, and, and told them, told him about an idea for a tattoo and they wanted to get a tattoo and, uh, but they didn't have the money right now. And so they were going to wait till tomorrow or whenever they had the money to get it. And his response to that was, he, he said he kind of laughed because, um, you know, none of us know if we're going to live tomorrow. So I can't even think past today. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, <clears throat> Especially back then in East LA, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where people were gunning for you. Oh man, yeah. But uh, you know, um, my my thoughts on that is just an amazing quote that makes a lot of sense. We have to make the most of the moment, yeah. you know, and uh, and if we focus on uh, where we're at and what we're doing, <clears throat> you know, at the moment. Uh, we're going to create a better tomorrow. Yeah. It's going to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there's a good chance that we might be there. Yeah. But, you know, living for the moment in terms of, uh, you know, our, our recovery and, um, and you know, what we're doing. Uh, if we could just focus on where we're at and what we're doing and taking ourselves care of ourselves now, you know, we're going to create a better tomorrow. Yeah, that's good, man. Uh, that's real good. Thank you. Uh, I, uh, the other one came from Jack. Um, and, and this is a real simple one, man. And he just said, you can't take life too seriously. Um, I can kind of feel like, I know you've been through a, a lot of things in your life, a lot of ups and downs. I mean, obviously I don't, I don't even know the half of them, but just from the little bit we've chatted a little bit that I've got to read about you and, and, and watch some of the, um, some of the videos and hear a bit of your stories. Um, you've been through some, a, a lot of things in your life, but at the same time, like I get this vibe from you, um, of, of, of a very like seasoned veteran in, in learning how to kind of deal with emotion and learning how to, um, how to just kind of relax a little bit and, and correct me if I'm wrong on that. I'm sure you have your days. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I mean, what's kind of your response to, you can't take life too seriously. Well, you know that, <clears throat> you know, that's true. And, uh, w one of the things I know you, I, I know I seem, uh, you know, relaxed and stuff, but since I've been in recovery, you know, uh, everything has changed for me. So, yeah. like I said, I 
I had that attitude that I don't give a fuck about nothing attitude. Yeah. And when you have that attitude, you know, it, I think life is easier because you don't worry about anything. You know, like, um, I remember I would be at the drug house, you know, uh, trying to find a vein and all this stuff. <laughs> and I'd have a customer waiting at, at the shop for me. And I just did not care, you know? Yeah. And they would, and people would wait sometimes two hours for me. Wow. And then I'd finally stroll in and say, okay, what do you want? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but since I've been uh, sober, you know, like, I just desired, you know, to uh, to care about things, you know? Yeah. Like, especially, like, now all of a sudden I stress if I'm late for something, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but I I also still have that inside me to to not worry so much to put yeah. things into god's hands and uh that that's really the the biggest part of it is my relationship with god and um uh, so instead of having the attitude of like i don't care i'm not going to take this too seriously it's like you know just let god deal with this yeah and uh put things into god's hand rely on him and you know he comes through he always comes through for me so yeah. you know and and then, uh, like I said, you know, I worry about this and I worry about that, you know, getting money to pay this, my taxes, all this different stuff, <laughs> stuff that I would have never cared about before. Yeah. But I realized that I love it. Yeah. You know, I love it. I love being sober. I love being a responsible man. You know, I love these things. So yeah, that's awesome. It's a good stress. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I I, I totally get it. It's a good it, yeah, it's a good thing to to worry about if it's if we're gonna worry about anything. You know, it's just trying to trying to do right and trying to keep our side of the the street clean and uh, play our play our part. As my sponsor would always say, man, just play your part. You're just a small part in a in a in a big big picture. You know, um, what? Uh, okay, so uh, la last question for you, man, and then and then we'll uh, we'll end this thing today. And I, I've really enjoyed chatting with you, man, and, and thank you again for your time. Um, how I got a, I got a, a message just actually yesterday I came across it, um, and it had, it had mentioned about uh, you know they had listened to the show and they felt like I mentioned God too much right and um, and I, I I always am very transparent about that I I talk about what works for me I don't care what anyone else does I, if I share something I hope it it um, you know it can uh, help somebody else out there we all have individual stories and. Um, so I guess there's two parts to this question. Let me get to it. Um, how big of a, a role does God play in your recovery and, um, and that spiritual connection? And then how do you deal um, or, or how do you talk about God to a newcomer? Because it, you know, it sounded like this message came from a newcomer who was maybe agnostic or maybe having some issues with God. Um, I know that's kind of a complex two-part question, but any, any thoughts you have on that? Well, you know... <clears throat> Uh, God is everything for for me in my recovery, and uh, so much so. And I and I talk a lot about God uh, when I share at meetings and what what have you. Uh, so much so that uh, uh, you know uh, I work at this a couple of rehabs with this one. They hire me to lead groups, uh, just spiritual groups, you know. Yeah. To because the biggest problem people have when when coming into the program is God. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of it because of background. Uh, a lot of it because of experience or, you know, just people have a problem with the whole God thing, you know. So uh, what I try to do is share my 
my story, you know, uh, that part of my story when, when, you know, because of all my years of drug abuse, you know, I had gotten congestive heart failure hmm. and I, and I was, after I got out of prison, I kept using and kept using and I got really, really sick. And then I got arrested, you know, and, uh, and so on a parole violation and a new case. And I was in the county jail and I got so sick with the withdrawals plus my, my heart condition that I couldn't even walk. They had me in a wheelchair. And uh, my heart was enlarged to the point where it was almost coming out of the cavity. I couldn't even lay back. Damn. I, I was like certain that I was going to die in there. And then I had a heart attack. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so I was in the jail hospital for a couple of weeks, and uh, the, you know I was taking all these medications. They sent me back to the county jail. I had another heart attack, and uh, went back for three weeks. You know to the to the uh, you know um, to the jail ward. You know uh, the general hospitals near the county jail, and so they would send you over there, the thirteenth floor, and. Uh, <laughs> But you know what? I mean, I was sick. And I remember the doctor telling me, I just don't see how you can go on without a heart transplant. You know, and, um, and I was like, I don't see how I'll get a heart transplant being a parolee in jail. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, um, but it was really bad. Anyways, uh, eventually they sent me back to the county jail. And uh, <clears throat> I remember uh, this story uh, uh, about a king, you know, in the Bible. Uh, about a king and this prophet went to the king and told him you know um get your affairs in order your time is up you're gonna die you know uh, he had sinned or whatever and so the king decided to go over the prophet's head and talk to god himself and so he asked god for more time and god gave him 15 more years because he had the faith to go to him and ask so i was like mm. you know what I'm going to talk to God. And yeah, I prayed. We all pray when we're in trouble. And, yeah. and you know, we there's there's like little formats for prayer, you know, dear Heavenly Father, whatever. <laughs> this time I felt different. I was going to talk to God, you know. And in order to be alone, I had to go up these two little flights of stairs to the shower room. And I remember climbing up those stairs. <laughs> it took me like a half an hour because really... You know, I would take a few steps and I would be, uh, uh, I couldn't breathe, you know. Damn. I couldn't take any deep, deep breaths at all, you know. And because um, my lungs were in failure, because my body wasn't getting any oxygen, you know. Uh, because my heart. So I got out there and I said, God, I just want to talk to you. I can't make any promises because every promise I've ever made, I've broken. But I'm just asking you for more time. So that I won't die in this wretched county jail, so that I could have a chance to redeem myself and wow. be an example to my to my son. And uh, and so and I felt different, you know. I felt <laughs> I felt like I really talked to God, you know. And uh, so, anyways, but that night I had a rough night. I couldn't sleep, you know, because you can't when you're in that condition. You can't lay down because if you lay down, you know, you can't breathe. So you had to stay propped up, but I was having it rough. And then I remember in the morning I had another heart attack and they're rushing me to the hospital. So, you know, it was kind of like, you know, like in my mind, you know, I was thinking like, uh, 
you know, a big stamp from God, boom, your your request has been denied. <laughs> <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> and, uh, but something different. When I, when I was on my way to the hospital and they're giving me that nitroglycerin and, and putting the IVs and everything, I felt different. Hmm. Like, I... That whole time, I felt I was certain that I was going to die in there. And now all of a sudden, I felt like I was going to live. And I remember even telling the ambulance driver, you know what? That was the third time he took me to the hospital. And I was like, you know what? Uh, you've always been cool. When I get out, I want you to go to Shamrock Tattoo, and I'm going to give you a free tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, I'll take you up on that. I'll take you up on that. And I remember he was telling me, you know, he goes, you have a legitimate reason <laughs> because so many people would fake fake uh, illnesses to try to go to the hospital yeah. and get better food, you know. So anyways, once I got to the hospital, uh, I was there nearly a month. and uh, But with each day, I was getting better and better. And they had me on all these meds. And I remember the the, when the doctor was saying, you know, you're really improving good. You know, we're going to send you back to the jail. And uh they sent me back to the jail. I didn't have to be in a wheelchair anymore. All of a sudden, I could lay down and sleep. I even played a little basketball. Wow. Did a few push-ups, you know. Like, I was recovering good. And so every week, every Tuesday, they would send me to the hospital to do a checkup, you know. And I remember I was telling the doctor, yeah, so when I was doing push-ups, and he was going, you do push-ups? And I was like, yeah, I've been doing push-ups, you know. He goes, how many push-ups can you do? And I was like, well, I started with one, but I can do 10 now, you know? Dang. So so then he listens to my heart and stuff, and he goes, you know what, I'm going to have you come back, and we're going to redo all your tests, you know, the echogram, uh, that shot in, in your spine, you know, that diet, you know, all the heart tests. Yeah. And so <clears throat> uh, so I, I went back the next week, redid all those tests, and then the next week after that, when I got there, there was a bunch of doctors and interns and stuff there, and they all took turns listening to my heart. And then they, when they were done, uh, that the main doctor that I always see said, uh, you know what? He goes, yeah, you know, uh, you had to excuse all my colleagues here. It's just, uh, we've, uh, we've heard of people's hearts, uh, you know, recovering and repairing themselves, but we've never seen it ourselves. Wow. And this is just amazing. And when he told me, so then he goes, here, let me show you. Let me show you your chart, you know. Before, the, the only thing he ever told me was, you know, I don't see how you can go on without a heart transplant. <laughs> but now he's going to show me my charts, you know. That's, And so he's showing me, he goes, basically your heart was, you know, uh, you know, enlarged nearly out of the cavity and it was beating erratically and you weren't getting any oxygen to, to your body and your liver and your lungs were in failure. He goes, now... Your heart has reduced in size. Oh, and he goes, and it was beating at under 10%. That's as low as you can go. Dang. He goes, and now your heart's beating at 30%, which 30 to 70% is normal. He goes, uh, and I told the doctor, I go, you know what? I think God healed my heart and has given me more time. Wow. And he goes, well, I, I think your heart, your body healed your heart. And your heart is giving you more time. That's that. Science, he, had that whatever. he had that scientific perspective. He didn't want to take the, yeah. the spiritual one. But man, that hey, that's a that is an amazing story, man. In that, um, I'm kind of writing a couple of little notes as you were telling that, man. But that's one of the things I put is that's a miraculous recovery right there. And I think that that's 
you know, at least to me, uh, that's proof that, that, that God does heal when we pray and when we submit to him. Um, and you said it earlier, man, God's never let you down. I know for me, God, God has never let me down and I'll just continue on that path too, man. Thank you for sharing that story too. That's uh, that's pretty amazing. And so, so today, I mean, everything is everything cool. Like for today, as yeah. far as your heart goes and everything's yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been 10 years now. Damn. You know, and maybe he's giving me 15 years like that King, <laughs> but, <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I don't care. It's been the most amazing 10 years in my whole life. I've never, <clears throat> You know, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't change a thing in my life yeah. because of the goodness that I've experienced in these last 10 years of sobriety. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah, yes, uh, you know, not everybody's going to have, <clears throat> you know, a miracle like that. That was a, an amazing miracle, uh, you know, that happened in my life. And um, it's something I think about every day and I try not to forget, yeah. you know, when I go to God in prayer and I try to share this story. Some people might say, "Ah, oh, yeah, right, as baloney or whatever," but you know, other people resonate with that story, yeah. and uh, and and uh, and they find faith. And you know that that was one of the key things. If I could just share this real fast, absolutely. What was uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, I have some Christian background and stuff, and I remember always, you know, uh, you know, it's impossible to please God without faith. You know, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be uprooted and be thrown into the sea. So I always believed that faith was a very important part of pleasing God. And um, and so when I went and had this conversation with God, I tried to have faith, you know, yeah, and believe that God was going to do it for me. But it was impossible. How are you going to believe that God's going to heal you like that? You know, yeah, it was impossible for me to have faith. But. I remember on that that drive that am, that in the ambulance driving to the hospital something came over me where all of a sudden I believed that I was going to survive and I was going to live and um and hmm. at the moment that I should have never believed that because I was having a heart attack yeah you know and uh so I believe that that God gave me the faith that I needed, you know, that faith, it's impossible for us to have a good faith, you know, but those times when we need it, it comes from God as a gift. Man, that's good, man. That is, yeah, that's awesome, man. Definitely a gift. That's for sure. Um, the book guys, one more time is smile now, cry later, guns, gangs, and tattoos, my life in black and gray, uh, by Freddie Negretti and Steve Jones. Um, you can pick it up, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, all the um, book real retailers online. Uh, also, uh, Freddie, man, uh, it's been an honor, man. I, I really enjoyed. It. I hope I get to come down uh, to uh, to the Hollywood area occasionally, uh, man. I, I, if I do that next time, I would love to stop in the shop and check it out and say what's up. I uh, appreciate your time. Anything else you want to add today? Uh, just uh, my Instagram. Yeah, Anybody yeah, absolutely. Out there? If you want to take a look at my work or some of my activities, uh, my Instagram is Freddy underscore Negretti. So that's F-R-E-D-D-Y underscore Negretti, N-E-G-R-E-T-E. -E. And uh, and if uh, anybody uh, wants to look into getting tattooed or anything, you just call Shamrock Tattoo at 310-271-9664 and book an appointment. I'm always there. I'm a workaholic now, man. I work, <laughs> I work six days a week, you know? 
I'm really focused in on my work and, and my tattoos and I love what I'm doing, you know, so I do it all the time. That's awesome, man. There's nothing better than waking up every day and actually enjoying what you do, man. So uh, congrats to you on that. And, uh, uh, you know, congrats on, on being clean and sober. And thank you so much again for sharing your uh, story today, man. Hey, thanks for having me, bro. Yo, thanks for tuning in today. It's a beautiful day to be sober. Go to thatsoberguy.com for more information. Keep your blood clean.